Welcome to Downstage, the podcast of the San Diego Theater Critics Circle. I'm David Cotton. Hey, David. I'm Alejandra Ciso Dardashti. How are you today? I'm good as I can be. Yay! <laughs> Here's why I'm so good, uh, or well, I should say, is because we have uh, a guest joining us right off the top today, the president of the San Diego Theater Critics Circle, Erin Murray Ryder. Welcome. Well, thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. Before we talk about criticism, which is something we talked, we said we were going to talk about last week. Erin, why don't you tell us a little bit about, in just a moment, of your own theater life and your theater experience first, so that our uh, audience can get to know you a little, because they'll be seeing you often. <laughs> Well, I have, I'm a San Diego native, born and raised here, going up, going to the, the Globe and the Playhouse. And, you know, those are my home theaters that I, I grew up with, the Civic, all of that. And I was a performer for a long time. Um, and then I realized that I really wanted to be in this industry, but I, you know, performing was not the thing I was going to do. Um, there are people way better and more talented than me. Um, but I want to support it. I want to be a part of it. I want to help it grow. And so in college, I was easing out of performing and into kind of writing about it and covering it and making people aware of things like what happens backstage. And there's more than just people on stage that make this world happen. Um, and so now I've been writing about theater for 15 years. Um, I have my own website. I write for Broadway World. Um, and I, I really love it. I love um, interviewing people and, you know, finding out what makes them tick and why they want to perform or be a stage manager or, you know, design something. And, um, and I like helping people understand all of the moving pieces that, you know, put a show together because I think it's fascinating and it's all an art. It's not just the person on stage. Everything that everyone does is art and I think it should be celebrated. A hundred percent. Yes. Congratulations, by the way, this is your first year as president of our organization. Thank you so much. I'll, uh, I'll do my best to live up to the high bar that Pam set. Very high. And how, how long have you been in the circle, Erin Marie? Uh, I think I've been in the circle now for six years, um, but two and a half of those were COVID years. So I don't know if there's a, a an advanced math equation, um, <clears throat> but I, I knew of the circle before I joined it, um, but I was like, what, what do they do? Who are they? What, you know, what do they know about theater criticism that I don't? Um, so I was very excited to join and have this wonderful group to talk about theater with. Um, my website's called Talk Theater to Me because I genuinely just want to talk about theater to people. <laughs> that is what I found with this group. Yeah, we were going to use that as the name of the podcast. We found out it was taken. So. Oh, no. <laughs> Sorry, buddy. <laughs> Maybe you could have, like, figured something out. <laughs> Since you raised the uh, issue of doing what we do, why don't it be kind of fun today to talk about criticism and what we all think it really is. And Alejandra, I'd like to start with you on this. Um, you've been writing criticism yourself for quite some time. Mm -hmm. you know why and what is it? 
Oh my God. Uh, I'm so, you know, I write and I'm so bad with words, especially when it's in English, but um, I always, every time I introduce myself or I do a talk back, right? I say theater criticism is not dead. Um, I liked how you said in the, in our first episode, how it's a uh, compare and contrast. So basically is you go, you see a performance, right? And there's different specialties. You can do theater, dance, musical theater, opera, right? Like for example, Pam Cragen, I always tell her, Pam, you write like the angels when you review opera. Like I can read her opera reviews. Like I don't understand half of it, <laughs> but so it's basically saying it talking about all the moving parts that Erin Marie was referring to lighting design, sound design, um, the actors themselves, the story, how the story was brought to stage direction. So having all these, um, it's like a map and you map it out for people. And then you kind of uh, share your impression about it, but it has to be objective. So it's not like I didn't like it. So it was bad, <laughs> you know, so that's that's something that's that's hard to do sometimes or to. Um, portray in your work, where whether it's TV or written or you know radio, sometimes it's for me it it is you know sometimes I feel like it's just like bland <laughs> and it's just out there. And sometimes we get comments also <clears throat> that we comment more on performance versus a creative aspect of the play, right? Um, and I think. I, in order to make a good piece, you have to acknowledge everything, uh, including almost sometimes like the stage management, because when there's a lot of props, when there's a lot of movement um, going on in the piece, I think that that's uh, something that also should be acknowledged. So people know because people, you know, the, the common denominator, like we say in Spanish, it, it does not know about these things. Hopefully I kind of explained it and then it just didn't go around in circles. <laughs> I think there's a tendency in criticism to focus on an area that you're uh, most familiar with and most interested in. So I know that a lot of my reviewing, the first thing I look at is the writing and the writer. Um, but I try to remember that a production is, as you said, Alejandra, about so many different moving parts, including the script itself. Um, but we all bring our own you know, predispositions to the work that we do. I think the tricky part, too, is that we are coming at it from an informed and analytic to an artistic equation kind of perspective. But also the things that we write, whether it's a review or an interview or a feature, um, are multifaceted because it means different things to different people. So a theater is going to use it for maybe publicity and marketing. And a performer is going to use it because they can use it in their resume or in their press reel. Um, and then readers want, just want to know, like, does this sound like a show I would enjoy and I should spend my money on? Um, and we're also hoping that it's kind of a springboard for a conversation on greater theater in the community and, you know, the work. So there is a it each thing that we write could be a lot of things to a lot of people. And sometimes that's hard to convey in like a, a piece that you're writing. Um, but I, what I think we do is we take an ephemeral artistic moment that will never occur again, even though that show may run for a couple of weeks, but the show that we see is fleeting. 
and we make it concrete when we write about it. And we say this existed and this is something to talk about and to remember and to celebrate and encourage people to attend before it's over if they so choose. Um, and I think that's an art in of itself. We, it's an art to write about art. Um, Absolutely. Before we continue, I have I, this question popped into my brain for both of you, because that's the interviewer in me, right? Like I'm a reporter first, no? What is difficult for you guys to write about when doing a review? Like what's your pickle? For me, it's like sometimes everything. <laughs> but what is your pickle when writing? David? My, my pickle is that to me, the easiest reviews to write are when a show is wonderful or when a show is terrible. But the fact of the matter is, and I'm sure you both would agree with me, that the vast majority are neither. And you have to approach something that has good and bad in it. Or I shouldn't say good and bad, positives and negatives, perhaps. Um, and, and writing about that, to me, is so much more challenging than the other two. And as I just said, most of what I review falls into that category. So while I wouldn't call myself a struggling writer, I do face that dilemma more often than not when I approach a review. Mm -hmm. No, they're gonna come for you. <laughs> I, I agree with that. I agree with that because I think sometimes I think, okay, is this something that is worth putting in a permanent record of you know did this work or not i think if it's a if it's a newer work or something where the, obviously it's going to go on and there's going to be you know maybe some revisions or something then it makes some sense but if it's like west side story then you know they're not changing that that story um it's you know but i i think that that's part of the and i think especially now after covid i am very aware that the theaters are you know trying to get their audiences back and they're very like and so i am also very aware of like okay if is this thing that maybe i want to note it's not necessarily bad or good but i want to note as like oh that stood out to me could that be something that someone would read as a ding if i don't mean to you know like i because i am aware that like we're in a sensitive time for that and that we do have a platform that a lot of people see um, and so wanting to be really fair as well. I think that I struggle with that, especially right now. Like I'm trying to be very fair um, because not every critic is for every person. You could read my stuff and think she's a crazy person. Every review I've ever read from her is wrong. And then read David's and be like, he's brilliant. And then just follow him because clearly your tastes align, right? And so I think that you have to read a lot of critics to figure out what it is that you as a reader are looking for because we're all going to approach it so differently. Yeah. We'll have to come back in a future episode with EM and just talk about why people don't like critics. I know. <laughs> <laughs> why people I don't hate. understand. <laughs> but for now, we're going to take a little break. Erin Marie Ryder, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. It was my pleasure. Yeah. We'll be right back. A couple of what we hope will be fun trivia questions for you today. And the first one is, what iconic movie star who was born in La Jolla, California, was one of the co-founders of La Jolla Playhouse back in 1947? We'll have the answer for you at the end of the show. 
We are back and live from New York is Candace Crystal, actor, professional intimacy, director extraordinaire. Welcome, welcome. Thanks for having me, y'all. I so appreciate it. Yeah, it's great to have you. You know, we, we've been curious in our little meetings of the Critics Circle about the role of the intimacy coordinator in professional what and you do this what exactly does this person do uh, that's a great question uh firstly an intimacy professional is ensures that um there is choreography for intimate moments on stage including simulated sex hyperexposure. um i think there's a, a lovely conversation to be had in this post-covid world of like how touch has evolved over these last couple of years. Um, additionally, they are a liaison between the performers and, if you will, any of the technicians. So costumes, uh, talking to the director, it really helps to level the playing field of power dynamics in the room. Um, and they're also an advocate. So making sure that everything that is happening for that performer is safe and sustainable. Why is this so important? We kind of said this, but you know, inherently, why is it important in a production and how does it benefit actors who may be even uncomfortable in intimacy moments? How do you make an actor comfortable in an intimacy moment as something that's as weird and strange as it is to do something like simulated sex on stage? And I, I'll be really, really honest. I love this work as someone who has dealt with people who will cross your personal boundaries as someone who has not always been the one with the power in the room because I am a black woman in this world. I think it's one of those things where I was drawn to this work because of the fact that it puts the performer first. It puts that human being first and foremost to make sure that they're working within the container they feel most comfortable in, but also making sure that they can do the work versus we'll just go for it. I think that that's a, a very, uh, antiquated uh, point of view. And I think that's part of why this work is important is it gives the power back to the person who's doing this nightly, right? Because your body doesn't really know the difference physiologically. It just knows that you're doing something. So why not give an actor a tool like you would for anyone in any profession? They need the tools to do their jobs. And this is just adding to that toolkit. Um, we had a, a conversation when you did uh, NEAT this year in San Diego, which was amazing. Uh, there's there, there's you <laughs> in the room as an intimacy coordinator, director, professional, but then you have the director, right? Has it happened that you both like butt heads sometimes for a scene where the actor reaches out and is like, help? And how does that <laughs> look? Okay. <laughs> uh candidly i've definitely had actors who've reached out who are like hey i'd love an intimacy director's opinion on this um but i think that's a, a common misconception with intimacy work is that we are here to like boohoo the directors and it's very much a collaborative field where we are working to bring the director's vision to life in a more safe and sustainable way i think another beautiful thing about having an intimacy professional on whether it's on set or in a theater is having someone there who's like I may be able to better communicate this with someone as an actor compared to 
I'm trying to get this from this actor and I just can't get it. You, you need those people in your background, right? You would do the same thing with fight choreography. I'm not going to sit here and try to choreograph a sword fight. That's not my, my like forte. So why not bring someone in who their forte is specifically to make sure that the actors feel most comfortable creating hyper nudity or, or simulated sex on stage. Um, and I think there's a, something to definitely be said about butting heads. There are opportunities to butt heads, and that's that's not a bad thing. I think a lot of people stray away from it because it's like, oh, I don't want to butt heads. But ultimately, if you're going to be an advocate in this industry, you have to be willing sometimes to go to bat for folks. And you also have to be willing to take criticism. And, you know, I may have a whole vision for what this moment is going to look like. And an actor is like, that doesn't really work for me. Great, let's pivot. How do we make this work for you, the person who's doing this every time? Because I think sometimes we don't look at it from that perspective. We very much see it as, well, this is what I want. But is it going to work for the actor doing the six nights a week for four weeks? Is this a one-time, one-session you know, process for you, or does it continue? Over the course of <laughs> it's never a one-time, one-session process. I'm always available to the performers I work with, um, within reason, of course. It is. It depends on the project. It's different from project to project. Um, I also have to work within certain folks' budgets, so I have to be really, really cognizant of that. I, I do very much say I'm like a budget-friendly ID. You let me know your budget and I'll let you know what I can do to help because I do believe in this work. I also recognize a bit of privilege and being one of the only intimacy directors in San Diego. In addition, um, I'm actually working on my certification right now. So I have a little bit more of a ways to go until I'm certified, but that's important to me that people know like this is with that certification, what I have learned, what I have done, this is the work I have put into it. And I think for some folks that's, that, that itself can be controversial, but to me, it was important that I did get a certification to say, hey, I'm working hard to make sure theater is still safe, particularly knowing the folks who theater hasn't been safe for historically. I wanna make sure it continues to be safe for people who look like me and anyone coming into this industry today. And maybe there's folks who are curious, but I'm an open book. So if you have questions, you can always call and ask. Oh, that's great. And for people that want to um, go into this line of work, what are some of the steps that have to be taken in order to do that? That's a great question. Uh, for folks who want to go into intimacy, I would offer that I'm also a teaching artist with Intimacy Directors and Coordinators Inc. Uh, that's where I train as well. And they have been a beautiful intimacy home for me. And they may not be right for everyone, but that would be my personal starting point. Uh, there are other organizations, including uh, ICOC, Intimacy Coordinators of Color. Uh, you have TIE out of LA. Um, and then SAG-AFTRA has seven to maybe it's nine now, but uh, different organizations on their website that you can reach out to, that you can take a workshop, take a class, see if it's for you. It's not going to be for everyone. Some folks just want to get more knowledge, and I think that's important. Education is always going to be important. Um, and some folks are like, hey, I really want to go the certification route. And I think that's something to have a conversation about because it is an investment, both time and financially, that not everyone is prepared to do or able to do. So I think that's another beautiful part of it. Like certification was attainable for me uh, with the recognition that it's not going to be attainable for everyone at this time. And that's why I'm like, take the workshops. A lot of these different organizations do free workshops. And, um, you know, there's lots of really excellent books. Um, between Chelsea Pace um, and Alexis Black and Tina Newhouser have a book that just came out as well. Um, I think there's a lot of, of really helpful resources. It's just knowing where to look and, and finding kind of your intimacy home. Is there enough content out there, Candace, to where a 
theater company could have a regular full-time, as much as theater is full-time, intimacy coordinator on the staff. Resident intimacy directors are becoming more popular, I will say. Um, I am not a firm believer in a resident intimacy director unless they are understanding that sometimes on gigs you're going to need to bring in a cultural consultant because uh, I think that that can be really tricky. It'd be like having a resident director, right? What content are they choosing? Are they directing every show? Is it within you know their cultural experience? I think that's that's part of the conversation of like yes, a resident intimacy director can be great for an organization with the caveat of they may not be the right intimacy director for every single show. Is the gender of the intimacy correct uh, coordinator a factor? I don't know that the gender is a factor. I think it is dependent on the show. Um, for example, if it is an all male show, right, it may be better that they have someone that they can relate to. Um, but I am also a firm believer of sometimes someone is better than no one. Um, so I can recognize too that that might be the only option. I have a colleague who uh, he's uh, identifies as white and was asked to do a raisin in the sun because they could not find a black intimacy director in his area. And he was like, I was so happy they called me, but it was because they couldn't, they went through like four or five different folks before they got to him. And that was one of those things where I'm like, yeah, they tried, they did their due diligence and that was who was available. And sometimes that's what it comes down to, unfortunately. Um, but I think everyone's just capable of doing the work. It just is a matter of who is, is able to because this work is exhaustive and i think folks think it's like an in and out when it's never really just an in and out um you know sometimes we we block out a whole moment of, of intimacy choreography we get to tech and it's a lot of we need to adjust this or something has changed for the individual actor so we're, we're working with real life human beings and sometimes some need more than others yeah totally especially with the number of the cast depending right that's also a factor yeah, the cast, the scene, there's there's so many factors that go into it. So um, the venue, <laughs> you know, if you're doing it at the Globe versus, let's say, on stage Playhouse, how you choreograph those two areas are very, very different. Before we let you go, Candace, and we really do appreciate your joining us today, because you do wear so many theatrical hats, what is on your, we know you're in New York today, what is on your immediate horizon on the theater scene? My plate is so full, it's overflowing, but I'm very grateful. Um, currently, uh, I just had a Grace for President open at San Diego Junior Theater uh, as a director, so not acting in that. I have uh, two shows that I'll be directing in the fall, uh, Welcome to Sleepy Hollow at Oceanside Theater Company and um, 1222 Oceanfront at New Village Arts. So very excited oh, for those. Oceanfront this year, congratulations. <laughs> Thank you, yeah, and I'm actually kind of pulling back on the intimacy direction right now so I can finish my certification so I can better serve the San Diego theater community because it's really important to me that I, I keep doing that work. So hopefully by end of year, I'll be fully certified um, or early 2024 and uh, gonna keep aiming to make theater as safe as humanly possible. Great, that's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah, it's awesome that you're paving the way and that you're, you know, starting out in, in, in the county. It's really cool. It's really cool. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's an exciting opportunity. And I, I want to say, though, I'm not the only one who exists in San Diego. And, you know, the education route may not be for everyone. And I'm a firm believer in anyone who wants to make theater safe and sustainable should do so. And, you know, you don't have to be certified. You don't have to go through full training if that's not right for you. But you can absolutely learn. So take the workshops, read the books, uh, get the PDFs ask me i'm happy to, to to chat always because i do think it's, it's the more you know honestly oh wow yeah the more you know. <laughs> well thanks for joining us candace it's been a pleasure uh, enjoy the rest of your stay in new york safe travel yeah thank you so much thank y'all for having me it's lovely to see your faces today lovely to see you we'll be right back we have another trivia question for you all speaking of intimacy what was the first Broadway show to display full frontal nudity? Answer later in the show. But David, did you know that this commercial break is available for sponsorship? Well, there you go. So if any of our listeners would like to feature their company and or products, they can send us an email at info at sdcriticcircle.org with the subject line advertising in downstage. And we'll take it from there. And we are back. It's a, such a cool episode for number two, right? Having our president and having Candace. Dude, We're bringing more stuff important. for you guys. <laughs> yeah, we're on a roll. Uh, we promise provocative guests, uh, maybe not every week, but most weeks on this podcast, as much as Alejandra and I love to talk. And we do. We like I do. I do. We're going to do that now, by the way, <laughs> for the rest of the show. And on an important topic, right? Yeah, it's uh, it's totally important. And it's something that is happening. It's heard the, the theater community in general, right, is hurting. And um, the in L.A., um, that's close to San Diego, for people that are listening from out of California, um, the Mark Taper Forum just closed and canceled the, or postponed. What, what was the wording that they it's used? Suspended, I believe. Just the suspended their, 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 their season. So that's, that's concerning. That's scary. They're downsizing as well. And it, this brings a light, not only to that venue or that company, but it, there's, there's the same thing is happening throughout the country with other theater companies. And it's something that we need to discuss and we need to put out there and we need to come together and need to figure out what to do for this to not happen. I think that particular event has resonated because the feeling and the fear is that if a large organization like that can suspend its operation temporarily. What does it say for all the smaller ones too, you know, who don't even have the financial wherewithal that the taper does? Um, and it's certainly an issue that after the pandemic, the height of the pandemic, where theaters have tried to come back and some of them are struggling more than others. Probably everybody is feeling that to some extent. So, you know, the kind of the perfect storm here of, you know, post COVID, along with the financial realities of trying to make a, a, you know, a theater work, um, have created 
dare I say, crisis. Um, and because we care about theater, we certainly care about this. So, Alejandra, you're the you're the solution woman. <laughs> <laughs> well, I try. Sometimes well, they, they they pay me for that, but I don't know if you have a solution to this, but you must have some thoughts. Absolutely. I this is for me. Uh, obviously, this is my opinion. Sometimes I am very blunt about things that I see. But for me, David, this is a domino effect. Obviously, the pandemic was the one that just blew it all up. And it's a, it's a series of questions that theater companies have to ask themselves. And this is, how does your board look? How does your leadership look? Who is your subscriber? What is your base? And I think that there's a lot of vices that have happened throughout the years that theaters have been struggling for a while. That's that's the bottom line. But they say, or it is a matter of, oh, we have the budget secured for X amount of years, or we have this grant, or we have this endowment, so we can continue to make it work. But there's no contingency, no emergency plan for like how this has happened. I know also that sometimes they try and like, I'm trying, I'm trying, I'm trying, and I'm, I can't make it work, so suspend. And this is this also has to do with the audience being a, a way older demographic and a, not as diverse. There needs to be more outreach programs. I know they're going to say, well, that also costs money, teaching artists. But again, this is a domino effect. You have to start small and then continue to grow. And I feel that it's the focus has been always on selling tickets at the at that moment and to the same subscription base. And it all also comes from the board. So if the board is not really reflecting how audiences are and there's no mm, outreach to the younger generations, well, that's not going to happen. And um, I love to talk, like you said. I'm, I'm going to close my participation with this. Mm, I had a boss, and, which I say hi you know who you are. And he would always say to me, everything is about interest, time, and money. You know, you have the interest, you'll find the time, you'll find the money. So if I see a Bad Bunny concert in San Diego where the performer is here for two days when that does not happen in San Diego with concerts and he is at this huge venue like the Petco and tickets run for $1,000 and kids are going for two days, so this is $2,000, there is a budget out there. There is an interest out there. How do we make it coincide in our area? How, what are the outreach efforts that we are doing? End of segment <laughs> for me. <laughs> I'm glad you said that because in, in an effort to reach younger um, theater goers, uh, there is a, a feeling that you have to lower ticket prices because mm -hmm. our budget is different. And you're pointing out that if it's something they really want to see, like a Taylor Swift or... And that's or, another example, that Taylor money. Swift. They will get the money and they will invest the money for their... And you feel it's worth it. Um, so it isn't just a business model problem. I think that theaters are going to, and maybe they are to some extent, have to have a take a hard look at the presentation as well. Uh, I'm going to touch on a couple of things that I know we're going to talk more about in future episodes. One of which is... Um, I think the the audience appetite for a three hour production 
um, is diminishing. Not for everyone. Not, not for, for everyone. everyone. I mean, I, I can sit there it's not for everyone. Equals in America, you know, five more times and wouldn't blink. Oh, absolutely. But I think that theaters have to keep that in mind because of the automatic entertainment uh, culture in which we live in. And I also think we're going to have to see more flexibility in, in scheduling. Uh, I know a lot of theaters here in San Diego have switched to the 7 p.m. Uh, curtain instead of 8, which I think is a smart thing to do. Um, you know, the way that theaters use matinees probably uh, should change to some degree. Make it easier for people of any age to go to the theater um, and make the experience more manageable. I mean, if baseball can put a pitch clock in to speed up the game, <laughs> theaters can do something. Now, it is a little different because you're dealing with an art form. Um, and I love baseball, but it, I don't consider it an art form. But you're dealing with something. Oh, they're want. coming for you. <laughs> you, want, you want to compromise uh, a playwright's work or, or the essence of a production. But I do think there should be ways to make, to bring economy of time into the theater going experience. So many people after COVID-19 adopted this cocooning, right? You know, the streaming mentality, the binge watching mentality and aren't going out. And theater, I think to some degree is uh, a victim of, of that as well as some other things with people you know, going to concerts and so forth. I was just talking to somebody a few moments ago of Mike that Coachella this year streamed the entire event online and many people stayed home and watched it. They called it Couchella. You know? mm -hmm. So I, I'm not saying theaters should go online. We talked about that last week and I don't think anybody wants to do that at least instead of, but I think in addition, as I started to say, I think in addition to the business model, theaters need to think a little bit about how they present their productions and what will be um, convenient and accessible for people. Yeah, I, I think that the streaming, as I said in the first episode, should be considered to offer as an option because of revenue, because again, of audience development, all these types of things. And when I mentioned diversity in audience, it's not just about race, color, it's about age, it's about, uh, you know, zip code. It's, it's all these things that matter because we all have a soul <laughs> and theater caresses the soul no matter what. It's the access, that's the, the, the key point. And, uh, speaking of duration, six uh, went by the tour and it came to San Diego. And I call six, which is about the tutors and, you know, the wives of Henry VIII, the eighth, a Gen Z musical. Like you're sitting down and the musical's like over. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a format that's very, it's, it's, it's brief, it's fast. It's, so I feel that that format is like the new era right of 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 musical theater broadway a, a new option that you can and 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 you see the audience you see the youth there and there's um fan bases for each queen and all this this thing you could also say well yes alejandra hamilton well that's an it has the rap it has the diversity so all these elements that they're combining and they're making these hits but it's because of the nature of it I want to do a quick shout out too to New Fortune Theater Company, who took 
Anatomy of the People, which is a five act drama uh, written by Ibsen and used an adaptation uh, by David Harrower, which condensed it to 90 minutes. And having seen both, I didn't notice the difference except in length. To me, nothing was lost. And that 90 minutes was propulsive. I mean, it moved, you were invested. Um, obviously you can't take every five act drama and condense it to an hour and a half, but it shows it's possible. And uh, it was a, a dramatic experience as opposed to musical theater uh, that really worked. And I came out of there thinking, you know, I'd like to see more of this. So. Mm -hmm. I don't think the things are hopeless by any means. Now, I'm not, no. I'm not running a theater, so it's easy for me to say, but I think that people are thinking about it and maybe acting on it as well. Yeah, I think it, there should be uh, more more of that, some more of those think tanks, and think tanks and acting. I agree with Public Enemy. I think that also the setting of having it at a church <laughs> was also a a... a good element to that that made it interactive and creepy <laughs> at the same time but creepy in the politics aspect of it and i agree with you the old globe does the same thing with shakespeare and condenses for glow for all 90 minute taking it into the community those types of initiatives again we don't run a theater company that's i say that too but i don't run a theater company but those are things that can be taken into consideration. And yes, they cost money, but again, it's a, a longer plan. It's, it's baby steps, right? In order to, to, and it's trial and error. We never know with audiences, you, you never know how that's going to go. All you can do is try, right? But I think there's hope. And that, that's a great way to end this uh, episode on a note of hope. Uh, we wouldn't be doing this podcast if we didn't feel that theater has a healthy future. Uh, and like anything else, like any institution, it's going to require some changes. And that's you know, what life is about, right? Absolutely. And it's very needed. I always say art is something that needs to be in the basic basket. You know, milk, eggs, art. <laughs> you have to have it because it just it changes people's perspectives and feelings and decision making. I, I, I strongly believe that. And yeah, let's 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 help. <laughs> We will do our best. Well, thank you once again for joining us on the Downstage Podcast. We will be with you in a couple of weeks with more insights and fun and more thoughts. This is David Cotton. Hi, this is Alejandra Enciso. We will see you on the next one. Bye-bye. Well, it's time for the answer to today's trivia questions. The first one was... What iconic movie star who was born in La Jolla, California, was one of the co-founders of La Jolla Playhouse in 1947? The answer, Gregory Peck. And FYI, the other co-founders were Mel Ferrer and Dorothy McGuire. Alejandra? Speaking of intimacy, what was the first Broadway show to display full frontal nudity? The answer is, oh, Calcutta in 1969. Downstage is a production of the San Diego Theater Critics Circle. Your co-hosts, David Cotton and Alejandra Enciso Tardashti.